Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner, too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. The Peter Schiff Show. Hi, this is Peter Schiff. I am recording this on Saturday, May 6th, 2017. On Wednesday of this week, the Federal Reserve decided not to raise interest rates in May. But based on what they said in their official statement, the market assigned a much higher probability to a rate hike coming in June. And in fact, following Friday's slightly better than expected non-farm payroll report, the probability of a June rate hike is now near 100%. In other words, the markets are certain that a quarter point hike is coming next month if, the fa- if, in fact, the Federal Reserve does raise interest rates by a quarter point, that'll bring the floor of the official rate finally up to 1%, the ceiling being one and a quarter. So presumably the Federal Reserve will target a Fed, Fed funds rate somewhere between one and one and a quarter percent. Now, this is still an exceptionally low rate of interest, uh, indicating extreme monetary accommodation. Remember, 1% is the absolute low that Alan Greenspan lowered interest rates to in the aftermath of the 2001 recession and the 9-11 terrorist attacks. That is the artificially low interest rates that really provided the air for the housing bubble that burst and resulted in the 2008 financial crisis. So despite these rate hikes, the Fed remains extremely accommodative in their monetary policy, just not as extremely accommodative as they were before. Now, if you recall, the main reason that I was uh, certain that the Fed would not be delivering these rate hikes, or why I believed it was far more likely that the Fed would not raise rates, was because I took the Fed at its word that it was data dependent. And I believed that the Fed would use the opportunity of weak data as an excuse, as a scapegoat, so that it would not have to raise interest rates. But I was wrong about that because the Federal Reserve has ignored all of the weakening economic data and has raised rates anyway. Now, it's raised them very slowly, but nonetheless, it has raised interest rates despite the fact that all of the data that they claim to depend on would not support that decision. Now, I thought for two reasons the Fed would not want to hike rates. One would simply be to delay the onset of the next recession. After all, if the economy was weak and the Fed raised rates into a weakening economy, it would simply accelerate the onset of that recession. And I thought the Fed would always err on the delay. They never want the recession today if they could postpone it till tomorrow. But apparently, that is not a concern for the Fed. Now, one of the reasons this might be the case 
is because the Fed is more concerned about having uh, some ammunition to fight the next recession rather than simply postponing the onset, meaning that they want to get interest rates further above zero before the recession officially begins so that once it's here, they have more room to cut rates. But also, I think another reason that the Fed has been more willing to raise rates has to do with the action in the U.S. stock market. I thought that the Fed would be reluctant to raise rates for fear of how the higher rates might impact the stock market. But it seems like the stock market has found another prop and is no longer simply relying on cheap money. It's now also relying on hope and optimism surrounding the election of Donald Trump and the idea that somehow he is going to make America great again, which includes making the stock market great again, with uh, deregulation and tax cuts and all sorts of economic stimulus. So I think because of this, the Fed may feel that it doesn't have to provide as much support because the stock market is rallying in the face of these rate hikes. So the Fed is able uh, to raise interest rates, even though the data would not support it, at least based on the criteria uh, that, the, uh, that the Fed has out there. For example, the GDP growth in the first quarter of this year, we just got that last week, and according to the government, GDP rose by 0.7% in the first quarter. That is substantially below uh, the, the rate that the government was anticipating when the quarter began. In fact, the Atlanta Fed, which does this GDP Now forecast, they were looking for growth as high as 3.4% as late as February. And we just got 07 And in fact, if you look at a lot of the economic data that has come out since that release, to me, it seems that that 07 is more likely to be revised lower uh, in subsequent revisions. Now, one of the reasons that the markets reacted the way they did to the Fed's non-rate hike uh, on Wednesday was the fact that the Fed confidently proclaimed that the weakness that it did not see coming, right? The Fed was extremely confident that we were going to have strong economic growth in the first quarter. But now that we didn't get it, the Fed is equally as confident that that blip was transitory, that it has to do with some kind of quirk in the seasonality and that everything is going to come roaring back in Q2. Now, first of all, if there really is this kind of quirk, why didn't they anticipate it? Why weren't they warning us early on that we were going to get this weak number for Q1 because of these seasonality effects and not to worry because everything will be strong in Q2? No, they were looking for very strong numbers in Q1, and when they didn't get it, uh, now they're coming up with an excuse why they can dismiss it, and they're confidently proclaiming uh, a strong quarter. As a matter of fact, the Atlanta Fed, the same Atlanta Fed that was at 3.4 for Q1, and by the time we actually got the numbers, you know, they had actually moved down to 0.2 uh, for, for Q1. They're now projecting 4.3% GDP growth for the second quarter. Why? I don't know. I mean, based, I guess it's basically because it was so weak in Q1, they just assume that we're going to make it up in Q2. You know, and a lot of it has to do with the optimism that they see that will drive employment, that will drive consumer spending. But why should there be more optimism 
in the second quarter than we had in the first. I think one of the reasons that the GDP number in Q1 wasn't even lower was the result of a lot of optimism surrounding the incoming Trump administration and their ability uh, to really get the economy going. And I think that bled into uh, the numbers. I think by the time the second quarter comes around, and certainly the second half of this year, right, the bloom is going to be off that rose. A lot of this confidence is going to be replaced uh, by reality. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit more as this video blog uh, continues. But if the, the uh, enthusiasm over Trump really didn't help the economy in Q1 when it would be uh, at its strongest, why are they so confident that it's going to help the economy in Q2? As a matter of fact, on Friday, the New York Fed, which also puts out a forecast of GDP, they lowered their estimate for Q2 down to 1.8%. Now, assuming the New York Fed is correct, that growth is 1.8% in the second quarter, and assuming they don't revise down the 0.7% from the first quarter, you average that out, that's 1.25% GDP growth annualized for the first half of 2017. Now, does that sound like the type of data that would prompt a data-dependent Fed to raise interest rates? Not at all. So then the question is, why are they doing it? Given the data, why are they not uh, taking advantage of that to delay the rate hikes? And again, I've got two possibilities for why the Fed is, is doing that. One is that the Fed really understands how weak the economy is. They are worried about the economy, but the one thing they don't want to do is acknowledge how worried they are. And by not raising rates or by you know, admitting that they're now reassessing their view is an admission that they no longer have confidence in the economy. And since we know that it's a bunch of Keynesians that rule the Fed, Keynesians believe that economic growth is also a byproduct of confidence, of optimism, because they believe the economy grows based on spending. And people won't spend if they're worried. Businesses won't invest if they're worried, right? Consumers will save more. They won't just go out and put something on their credit card if they're worried about losing their jobs. So the Fed believes that its job is to instill confidence in an economy, even if they don't have any confidence themselves. And they're all, again, they're worried about creating the very problem that they're trying to prevent, which is by acknowledging that they're concerned, that they will influence consumer behavior and business behavior, that people will start bracing themselves for the economic downturn that the Fed is forecasting. So it would be a self-perpetuating uh, spiral. So instead, the Fed wants to just be as confident as possible by talking about how everything is doing well and backing that up with these occasional rate hikes where people say, well, I mean, if the Fed wasn't hiking rates, I mean, clearly they can't be worried about the economy because they're raising rates. And they totally discount the, the propaganda effect of those rate hikes or the fact that the Federal Reserve has never uh, forecast a recession. They have always blindsided. They always raise interest rates right into the recession, including during the recession, before they admit that we're there. So that could be one possibility. And also, as I mentioned earlier, Maybe the Fed thinks, look, we're going to have this recession anyway, and maybe we can delay the onset of the recession by 
you know, putting out a, an overly optimistic view, which will enable us to reload the gun, right? We can get a few more rate hikes under our belt so that by the time we're officially in recession, we've got distance between the current rate and zero. So we don't have to go right to QE4. We still have a couple of rate hikes up our sleeve. The other possibility is that they actually are this clueless. You know, there is a bias out there because assuming that the members of the Fed actually believe that their policy is going to work, right? Then if they get any evidence, they see the evidence that it's not working, they don't uh, reassess what they believe. I mean, after all, they are following the monetary policy textbook. They have done all the things that the textbooks say they need to do, and now they expect the textbook result. And when they don't get it, they don't start to question that maybe you know, the textbook is a comic book and you know, everything in there is wrong. Uh, they just say, well, you know, this, this must be some fluke. This must be transitory. We're going to get the growth. And so regardless of how much in, you know, information contradicts what they're doing, they just dismiss it and they just keep on sticking to their guns and believing, well, growth is around the corner. You know, we've been hearing this for years. It's always going to pick up in the second half if we get a slow first half. Whatever, there's a weak quarter. It's transitory. I mean, we've been transitioning for years and years and years, yet the Federal Reserve still doesn't acknowledge uh, the underlying weakness. Now, one of the data points that continues to provide cover for the Fed with respect to admitting how weak the, the economy is, is the jobs report. And we got another jobs report on Friday. And the markets were quite relieved because it was much better than the one we got for March, which they actually revised even lower uh, yesterday. So in March, we only created about 79,000 uh, new jobs. But hey, nothing to worry about. I think we did 212,000 in April. So all is good. We're back to uh, 200,000 plus uh, per month jobs. But of course, if you average the last two months, we only get 145,000 uh, new jobs below 150. That doesn't seem like a very strong economy, but the unemployment rate actually fell to 4.4%. I think that's the lowest official unemployment rate in 10 years. But again, the main reason for the drop in unemployment was a drop in labor force participation, which moved down to 62.9. You had more people leaving the labor force. They are no longer unemployed, so they're no longer part of the unemployment statistics. And of course, we're back to the same old, same old when it comes to the bulk of these jobs being low-paying service sector jobs. Earlier in the year, we did have a, a blip in manufacturing hiring, and a lot of people were saying, oh, good, look, we're getting these manufacturing jobs. I think this was window dressing. You had uh, some companies trying to curry favor with the new president by showing that they were hiring people. Well, we're back to the same old, you know, barely creating any uh, manufacturing jobs, all these low paying service sector jobs being created. So this is exactly the type of job report that characterized the entirety of the Obama presidency and is one of the reasons, one of the main reasons uh, that Donald Trump became president because he was critical of these phony jobs reports. He was talking to the voters about how the real unemployment rate is so much higher than the official one and how the jobs were being created are low-paying service sector jobs. He was honest about that as a candidate. But here we now, now have President Trump actually 
uh, embracing these jobs numbers that are identical to the ones that he criticized, and now he's claiming credit for all the jobs and for the low unemployment. So this is more of the same business as usual there in the swamp. And, you know, for those of you who are, you know, still naive enough to believe that something has changed just because uh, Donald Trump is president, this is more indication than nothing has changed. In fact, I think the best indication that nothing has changed is the, uh, the omnibus spending bill that went through Congress this week with the president's approval. The president could have taken advantage of the bully pulpit. He could have done something if he really wanted to change the course, the destructive course that this nation is on. He could have done something to limit government spending. Instead, he did nothing. The Democratic priorities uh, you know, were, were kept. Uh, spending increased. Deficits increase. So government is getting bigger. Trump did not do anything to make government smaller. Even in some of these smaller agencies, there were no cuts at all. Government is just going to continue to grow, and that means the problems are going to get larger and larger. Now, you know, there are, uh, again, some optimism because finally, after several attempts, uh, the Republican House of Representatives was able to pass a uh, repeal and replace bill for uh, Obamacare. And I've got no problem with the repeal part. I am all for repeal. The big problem I have is the replace part. And, you know, you have all of these Republicans now, they're congratulating themselves, they're singing songs about the end of Obamacare, right? Obamacare is over, you know, goodbye Obamacare. None of that is true. It's not over. The spirit of Obamacare lives in the replacement plan. Now, I don't want to get into, in this video blog, all of the, the intricacies and the differences between the two plans. I mean, there are certainly aspects of the replacement bill that are much better than Obamacare. Certainly, removing the requirement uh, for employers to provide the insurance is a, a big step in, in the right direction. So there are parts of the replacement plan that are better, but there are also parts of the replacement plan that are worse. Um, but the big problem I have with the replacement plan is that it represents a concession on the part of the Republicans that the Democrats are right when it comes to health care, that we cannot rely on the free market to deliver high-quality, low-cost health care to the public, that the government has to step in and take an active role in the health care. And we can debate uh, the, the, the means, you know, exactly how the government fulfills that responsibility, but the Republicans have already thrown in the towel on the free market, and they have agreed with the Democrats that it's some kind of a right, and it has to be uh, provided through government in some shape or form, whether it's with tax credits or with handouts or all sorts of controls on, uh, on the insurance industry. And of course, this idea that insurance companies cannot discriminate based on pre-existing conditions is now widely accepted by almost all of the Republicans. And of course, if you can buy health insurance with a pre-existing condition, it is no longer insurance. 
If you know you need the, the, the benefits, you're not getting insurance. You're getting free health care. Insurance is when you pay a premium for something that you probably will not need. But when you're paying a premium for something that you need right now, where the benefits are actually higher than the cost of the premium, then it's government provided free health care. And so we've already lost that debate. And here is the bigger problem. Because the Republican replacement plan will not work, when it fails, guess who is going to get the blame? You see, if they had left well enough alone or bad enough alone and done nothing, Obamacare would have eventually, eventually collapsed under its own weight. And then who would everybody blame? Obviously, they would blame the Democrats. They would blame Obama. I mean, it's called Obamacare. And when it fails, whose fault was that? But now the Republicans have changed the dynamic. Obamacare is off the hook. Because now, no matter what goes wrong, it's the Republican replacement plan that gets the blame, even though the problem is all of the spirit of Obamacare that got preserved in the new plan. But because they changed the name and because the Republicans have changed things, now the Democrats can say, well, you see, if they had just left it alone, it would have succeeded. But they screwed it all up with these free market reforms, even though the reforms are not free market. So if the Republicans had done nothing, when Obamacare collapsed, we would have had a real debate versus government-provided health care and the free market alternative. Now, maybe government would have won. Maybe we would have, we would have ended up at single-player socialized medicine anyway. I mean, that's where most democracies go, because even though it's lousy uh, economics, lousy medicine, it's good politics. I mean, the public always wants something for nothing. And when it comes for health care, that's when they really want something for nothing. And, and so maybe we would have lost that debate anyway. But I think this Republican replacement, assuming that the Senate actually passes it, I think this only ensures that the debate is lost. Because next time, when the Republican version fails, how are they going to argue for a free market solution when they've already abandoned any pretense of believing in a free market, but the Democrats will be able to criticize their replacement because of the supposed free market aspects of it. And I think it'll make it that much easier, that much more certain that when we, we have to abandon the replacement bill, that what we move to is the single payer socialized medicine. So this is not a good thing. And especially since the Republicans are out there talking about how great this plan is. They're not saying, you know, it's still bad. It's just not as bad as Obamacare. It's not going to work. It's still going to blow up. But politically, this is all we could do because this is the only thing that most Republicans have the guts to vote for because they don't want to tell their constituents the truth because they're too afraid of what happens to their own political career to actually care about the country. See, they're not saying that. They're actually pretending that this is good, that this is a great plan, that we're all going to have better health care, that it's going to work. And then when it doesn't work, they have no credibility when it comes to offering a market-based solution. And now the ball is back in the Democrats' court to say, you see, it doesn't work. Capitalism doesn't work. It's too much greed. These insurance companies are too big and too greedy. We've got to take the profits out of health care. You know, we need to make it a right. It has to be socialized medicine. So that is, is where we are coming. And so all of this you know, optimism, to the extent that it has helped prop up the stock market and GDP, 
over the game changers that we're going to get from Donald Trump, all of this is going to fade away. Meanwhile, if you look at the markets, gold prices have been falling uh, in the past month or so based on the increased probability of a Fed rate hike in June, simply because the Federal Reserve has refused to acknowledge the weakening in the economy. See, initially, as the economic data was coming out weak, the price of gold was rising because the market sensed that maybe the Fed would indicate their surprise that, hey, wait a minute, we thought the economy was going to be very strong and we're not getting the strength that we thought, so maybe we ought to take a step back here from these rate hikes. Maybe we should assess what's going on before we make any further decisions. Because after all, we didn't predict the weakness, but it's here anyway, so maybe we've missed something. So we don't want to risk doing more harm right, by raising rates even more. Again, in their, in their opinion, that would be harm to raise rates in a weak economy. So there was some, maybe people thought that maybe the Fed would do that. But when the Fed didn't do that, in fact, when they went out of their way to dismiss all of the weakness that they didn't see coming as transitory and confidently proclaim this huge rebound that we're going to get in the second quarter, well, the price of gold came down, anticipating the, the rate hike. But if you look back at the history of these rate hikes, that's basically what's been happening. The price of gold goes down as the probability of a rate hike goes up. But that by the time the Fed gets around to actually raising rates, the price of gold rises. It's buy the rumor, sell the fact. Only this time, I don't think the price of gold is going to wait for the hike to actually start to rise. I think the gold price is going to rise well before the Fed gets around to raising rates in June, if in fact they raise rates. But I'm not going to sit here and say they're not going to. They've obviously ignored the data in the past and they've raised rates anyway. It's quite possible that they do raise rates in June, even if it ends up that it turns out in hindsight that they raised rates in a recession. Because it's still possible that Q1 will end up being revised to a negative number. And rather than a big uh, rebound in Q2, that we continue on the same path. And interestingly enough, if you look at most of the economic data that came out in in the first quarter, the data got weaker as the quarter progressed. So it wasn't like it started out weak and started to improve. It got weaker the entire time. So I don't see how you expect everything to turn on a dime, just like a season, like, oh, it was winter and now it's spring. And so the economy is just going to blossom, you know, like the flowers. uh, And we're going to have all this growth. I mean, you would probably assume that the momentum that we had, the downward momentum in Q1 would continue into Q2. So the Fed may very well raise rates in June and then find out later that it actually raised rates in a recession. In fact, the rate hike that we got in the, the last one, I think it was, was, was the March hike, because the GDP only grew by 0.7, that was the weakest GDP quarter for growth in which the Fed raised rates in like over 30 years. I mean, you rarely get a situation where the Federal Reserve would rate its interest rates in a quarter where GDP growth was that weak. But again, they had no idea, at least publicly, that the GDP was going to be weak when they raised rates, yet they are reluctant to admit that they were wrong because they want to pretend that everything is fine, which is why they are still forecasting additional rate hikes. But, you know, the dollar market is acting much different than the, the gold market. Rather than rising, the dollar has been falling. See, normally you get some strength in the dollar 
when the probability of a rate hike rises, because after all, higher rates, everybody thinks that's bullish for the dollar. And so as the probability of a rate hike increases, so too does the value of the dollar. But that didn't happen this time. In fact, the dollar closed the day at about a six-month low in the dollar index. Now, you know, part of that is some kind of optimism regarding the French elections that we're going to have over the weekend. But still, um, in the light of the increasing probability of a rate hike, in light of what was, you know, the stronger-than-expected jobs report, the fact that the dollar was not able to rally, to me, it's a lot more than just uh, relief over the outcome of the French elections. I think what's happening is the markets are beginning to look beyond these rate hikes to see the next rate cut, understanding that the Fed is not going to come close to delivering the type of tightening that it had been indicating was coming, that we are not going to normalize interest rates, even if they do make it above 1%. You know, it's still very low. There's no way they're getting up to 2%. Even 2% would be historically extremely low. So they're never going to get to any sense of normal. Meanwhile, um, the Fed is going to be doing another round of quantitative easing. So the markets are now going to start anticipating an easing cycle. Now, how do you know that the Fed is going to do a QE4? Well, they've already said they're going to do it. They've already said that the next time they have a recession, they will use their balance sheet as a tool. Well, of course, they're going to have to based on you know, what they believe are the proper tools because they're not going to have enough rate cuts. Rates have barely gone up during the so-called recovery, so they don't have a lot of room to cut them. So we know they're going to principally rely on, uh, on quantitative easing. And also, to the extent that we do get the tax cuts. And I know one thing that's happened uh, is that uh, President Trump has released the tax cuts that he is proposing. And just like I uh, predicted earlier in the year, the trade, I mean, the budget deficits under Donald Trump are going to be huge. Donald Trump is calling for across the board tax cuts and actually extremely significant tax cuts for the upper income. Uh, but even large tax increases for middle-income and lower-income Americans. And the result of these tax cuts will be much larger budget deficits than the deficits that would have taken place had we not cut taxes. And, of course, if we get the Obamacare repeal in, you know, there are tax cuts in there as well. So we are talking about enormous budget deficits. Now, yes, you can argue that there will be some additional economic growth that will result in some incremental revenue to the Treasury from the tax cuts, but the growth nor the incremental revenue will be nearly enough to offset the loss due to the reduction in rates. In addition, there still is a large appetite on Capitol Hill for increased government spending as a stimulus for infrastructure. So not only is the government likely to see a significant reduction in its revenue, but it's also going to see a significant increase in its expenditures, which are already growing on autopilot. So the prospects of one and a half, two trillion dollar or more annual budget deficits are going to weigh very heavily on the dollar. And the only way the Federal Reserve can prevent those enormous deficits from causing interest rates to skyrocket, at least in the short run, is to monetize them, is for the Federal Reserve to step up and buy all those bonds 
with a massive round of quantitative easing that I think will be bigger than QE1, 2, and 3 combined. And even if the markets don't sense the magnitude of the monetary stimulus that's in the pipeline, I think they can smell the fact that the rate hike cycle, the tightening cycle, is nearing an end, and the next easing cycle is about to begin. And I think they also can sense, on the other side of the Atlantic, the ECB is preparing to do the opposite, that the inflation rates are running hot enough now in the Eurozone that the ECB is going to be withdrawing its monetary accommodation precisely at the time the Fed is reintroducing it. So in other words, this dichotomy, this divergence in monetary policy that the markets have been pricing in for years is actually going to develop the opposite of what they've been pricing in. Rather than the divergence being the Fed tightening while Europe is easing, it's going to be the Fed easing while Europe is tightening. And that is going to have profound implications for exchange rates, uh, for the price of gold, and for the performance of overseas stocks relative to U.S. stocks and the appeal that investors are going to find in both developed and emerging markets. In fact, year to date, despite all of the hoopla about the Dow hitting 21,000, the U.S. is one of the worst performing markets uh, in the world. Uh, The emerging markets have stolen all the Dow's thunder. Uh, They are double or triple the return on the U.S. market. But even developed markets are rising overseas faster than the U.S. So this is a change in trend that I believe will not only continue, but accelerate in the months and years ahead. Today's financial advisors behave like pro-wrestling TV commentators. They scream that the recovery is strong, debt is manageable, inflation is low, and that the Federal Reserve has everything under control. They may be oblivious, but the danger is real. Looking beyond the media hype can open a world of broader investing ideas. Euro-Pacific Capital is a registered investment advisor that offers stock-focused wealth management services that closely follow the strategy of our founder and CEO, Peter Schiff. We concentrate on those countries that are more closely in tune with Peter's vision of how capitalism is supposed to work. And these investments are not hard to find, provided you know where to look. Isn't it time you change the channel and let Euro-Pacific put a little reality back into your portfolio? If you live in the United States and have $25,000 or more to invest, call 800-727-7922. That's 800-727-7922. Non-U.S. residents access similar strategies through Euro-Pacific Bank at europacbank.com. Euro-Pacific Capital and Euro-Pacific Bank are affiliated companies. Hello, this is Peter Schiff. I bet you didn't know that without silver, you wouldn't be hearing this podcast right now or be able to use a computer at all. From laptops to smartphones to TVs to speakers, virtually all modern electronics use silver to conduct electricity. Did you know that the average solar panel uses two-thirds of an ounce of silver to function? And the solar industry is expanding dramatically, not just in America, but in booming developing nations like China and India. Silver is naturally antibacterial and is used extensively in modern medicine. Silver coatings are being added to breathing tubes, bandages, catheters, and other medical instruments to reduce the spread of infections. When antibiotics fail, silver still works. I believe the 21st century will be the century of silver. As fiat currencies continue to collapse and new uses are found for silver every day, the white metal strong industrial demand and low per ounce price will make it increasingly attractive to savers around the world. At today's prices, people of any age and background can afford to buy some silver. 
Learn why silver is a smart and reliable investment in my free special report, The Powerful Case for Silver. Visit shiftsilver.com and download it now. The Powerful Case for Silver includes information about silver's amazing chemical properties. It also explains why I believe silver may outperform gold in the coming years. Download The Powerful Case for Silver and educate yourself, your friends, and your family about the white metal. Just visit shiftsilver.com to download my free report. That's shiftsilver.com.